Welcome to the Her First Podcast, a platform to help online business owners, coaches, and creators gain the confidence needed to build a successful business while creating a sustainable lifestyle balance. We are here to help you prioritize yourself in business and life. I'm Joanna Newton. And I'm Michelle Poulani. In this podcast, along with the Her First Collective, you can engage in the challenges women face in business, ways to increase your impact or income online, and how to make it all work while launching, scaling, or maintaining. Spoiler, it's not about perfectionism, hustling, or a copy-paste methodology. Let's dive in. Maybe you have a business or you're thinking about starting a business, but you're so wrapped up in the excitement of it all that you don't really think about some of the technical things like forming an entity, getting legal documents in place, or how to protect yourself as a small business owner. In this podcast episode, we delve into the legal landscape with our guest, Olivia Casalini, partner attorney at A Better Professional Corporation, or BETTER for short, based in San Diego. So specializing in providing holistic legal solutions for small businesses, creatives, and nonprofits, Olivia collaborates closely with her partner and team to assist new ventures in navigating the legal system. Despite the potential cost challenges, they emphasize the importance of tailored legal support, having streamlined their system so their services are more accessible, and trimming the fat, so to speak, of unnecessary expenses. We're going to chat about what to think about as a small business owner so your business stays protected, content creation advice to avoid copyright infringement, and setting boundaries so you maintain your sanity in running a successful business. As you listen today, please note that this is just general information, and if any of this resonates with you with where you are in your business, this is not legal advice, so please seek counsel from an attorney. Let's dive into it. Hi, Olivia. Welcome to Her First, and let's start off with an introduction to your business and how you really support small businesses overall. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. You mentioned I'm an attorney. I'm licensed to practice in California, and a huge part of the work that I do is helping small businesses, nonprofits, and creatives really get up and running. I do help them throughout their life cycle, so I'm able to help with quite a bit, and especially when my partner gets wrangled in. I often wrangle him in for different things, but we really just try to be holistic, so um, we help with everything from entity formation to labor and employment and contracts estate planning. Uh, we also do notary services. So really, we, we really try to be a one-stop shop for our clients. And we just really want to be a safe, trusted source for people who typically get left out of the legal landscape. You know, with small businesses and nonprofits, they are not always working with a huge budget. And that usually means they have to kind of bootstrap and do things themselves. And that can often get them into trouble um, in the long run. And so we're really trying to kind of meet that need and and um, fix that problem for a lot of people. I think that's a really important problem to solve. I've worked at like large corporations who have whole legal teams and people you can go to to ask questions, have things reviewed and, and in that process. And that's so helpful. I've also worked at startups who have like no legal advice or help or very minimal. Um, and then personally in my own business, you know, we started a company completely bootstrapped with zero dollars and, you know, had to navigate all of those legal things a lot of the time on our own, right? Figuring out, doing research, using resources like LegalZoom, which is obviously not as tailored as, you know, a lawyer just for yourself or for your organization. 
And a lot of that is because the cost of legal services can be really high and really prohibitive to those of us who are just like getting started in our businesses, being bootstrapped, like you said. So how do you strike a balance between offering quality legal support and managing costs for your clients? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. We still have our crazy student loans to pay. Um, So we are, I, I never like to say we're cheap because in reality, we're not. We are probably still going to be one of your more expensive service providers. But we also got into this knowing, and when I say we, I mean myself and my partner, Sam, um, we got into this knowing that our priority was really to empower people with education and not necessarily to become the biggest law firm or the highest profiting law firm. There are plenty of law firms that that is their goal and that's their own thing, but it was never ours. Um, So, you know, we just really try to keep at the forefront what our priorities are, which, like I said, is empowering people through education. So we really like to try to keep our clients in the loop. And typically when our clients are in the loop, they kind of start to form their own ideas of where there are red flags for their business. And once they kind of have that sense of, okay, I am in over my head, I need to bring in my lawyer before things get too complicated, that can help them save a lot of money in the long run. Working proactively can really, really keep costs down. So that was something we really wanted to communicate to our clients was just If cost is an issue for you, you need to act a little bit more proactively. You're not going to have the option to just throw money at problems. So let's make sure those problems don't arise in the first place. We, we don't press, we don't push everything off to the clients. We also have just made a lot of choices internally about how we want to operate to keep our costs down. And so we don't really operate like a traditional law firm in a lot of sense. You know, we don't have a huge high-rise office downtown. We work in a co-working space and we rent a private office there, but it's one room that we are all working in. And we, you know, if we need to take phone calls, we have our little podcast rooms downstairs that we go into when we need that confidential space. We also really prioritize being efficient with our transportation. A lot of law firms, I don't know how many people know this, but like a lot of law firms will actually give stipends or company vehicles to their attorneys because it looks really good for an attorney to show up at a meeting in a really nice car. But that just didn't matter to us. So my business partner rides an electric motorcycle or an electric bike to work. Our paralegal takes the public transit system in San Diego. I am a one-car household and I share with my husband. And that's just what we have decided to do to keep costs down. A lot of law firms pay for awards. You'll see like rising star from a certain super lawyers is a big one. Super lawyers is a paid award. Literally anybody can be a super lawyer if they pay for that award. And so we don't do stuff like that. And that really does keep costs down. And so when we're able to keep those costs down, we don't have to pass them on to our clients. And yeah, I mean, just overall trying to prioritize being fair in our business practices. We just like to be as transparent as possible with our clients, letting them know up front, this is how long this process takes. This is how much it usually costs from a government perspective if you want to do it yourself. But this is usually the kind of problem you'll run into later on down the line. And just giving people, I guess, the full landscape of what they're dealing with so that they can make an an informed decision with their money and with their time. Being proactive in that way is really, really important. I don't think that we talk about that enough in the online space. I think that we're considered really short-term gains focus. Get this amount of followers in a month. Make this much money in 90 days or 30 days in a short period of time. But we don't often consider what is my business going to look like in a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. 
we don't have that futuristic thinking always at the forefront and therefore changing our decision-making process. Actually, one thing that's coming to mind is Alex Hermosi was saying that when he was looking for a YouTube person to actually start and support his YouTube presence, he told him that in 10 years from now, this is the results that I want to have. And it completely shifted the way that his agency and the way that his partners thought about the work that they were doing. It's not about, okay, how many views can I get on this? How viral can I go? But what am I investing in now that's going to fulfill in the long term and that's going to pay back in dividends? And I think legal services is exactly that. You're investing in something now that might not show or demonstrate its value and it might feel quote unquote expensive. But really, in the long term, it'll pay off and support you over the course of your business. And I think it's important for us to think about those things and consider those things. The other thing in which you're sharing, you're really demonstrating the priorities of how you've created and cultivated a business. You know, you're not just stepping into the norms of what it means to be an attorney or a lawyer or have a legal business and say, oh, this is how everyone's always done it. This is just how we're going to do it, too. We have to fit into that mold. A lot of the things that you mentioned are easy adjustments or simple adjustments that can really support yourself in your business and as well as attract the right type of person to your business and the type of businesses and business owners that you're looking to support. So I think as you're listening to this, really considering how you're setting up the structure of your business, the services that you offer, the priorities that you have, and how that's being reflected then in the clients that you're drawing in, the customer base, the audience on a larger level. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for creating that type of business. And thank you for prioritizing it in that way, because you're right. There are a lot of expenses that come along with businesses. And I'm kind of thinking of business coaches, social media coaches, and I see a lot of stuff of flashy, right? Flashy purses, flashy vacations, flashy cars, flashy homes. And we think that that is a statement of success. And we almost kind of get programmed in that direction to think that, oh, this opulence, this luxury, this financial wealth is what I'm really seeking. But that's not how we all want to live. And it's okay to say, no, that's not as what I identify that I'm working towards and I want something else and I want to determine and create something else for myself. So a lot of the folks who listen are in the digital space specifically or in the online space. And today we're going to talk about some things that are really valuable for our coaches, our creators, and our online business owners when it comes to understand how they're showing up in the online space. One of the things that stood out to me while we were talking is setting boundaries between your client to coach or client to attorney, in your case, partnership and what that relationship looks like. And I think sometimes we can all relate to having been pushed outside of our comfort zone when it comes to the scope of work that we're providing to someone, whether that's as a coach and you provide certain time accessibility, text messaging, boxer, video chat, access through email, or in the time length of your calls, right? or what it is that you actually help someone with. Also, as maybe a freelancer, thinking about, oh, I offer this type of service. This is the scope of work that I'm offering. This is the time frame that I'm going to do it in. This is the cost. But we've definitely heard some horror stories about contracts going awry or clients overstepping their expectations of what they're looking for in a service or a program or a product. So could you elaborate on some of the key aspects that we should really consider or think about as business owners when we're offering services 
or providing digital products to clients or customers. I definitely see the horror stories and that informs how I draft everything I draft for my clients. Sometimes I think it's intense when I give them a contract that has all these like worst case scenarios listed out. But you know what? The clarity is really important. And so that's my number one thing for people is make sure that your contract terms, your refund policies, whatever it is that you are wanting to enforce later on down the line, make sure that they are clear and really do cover as many worst case scenarios as you can think of. It might be kind of scary to the person that's signing it, but often I find that if you just talk with them and it kind of explain why those things are in there, they get it. I have had people push back on some parts of contracts that are really, really necessary to be there. And I always take that as sort of a red flag of maybe you don't want to work with this person because if they're pushing back now where you're setting your own personal boundaries, that might be sort of an indicator of what's to come. So I really encourage my clients to just take a step back when people are um, really unrelenting and wanting to remove those boundaries right up front. I also see a lot of people who don't want to use contracts with people that they are familiar with. So whether that's family members or friends or people that are in the same industry that they're maybe working on like an affiliate type thing with, they kind of want to do like a handshake deal where they're just like, we're all professionals here. We all will, you know, be nice to each other the whole time we're working to each with each other. And that's just really usually not true. Some of the worst contract disputes are just, you know, issues that I've seen arise actually come from people who are working with their own family or their really close friends because there's so much history there and there's so much passion and just so many different things that can be pulled out and kind of like thrown at you when you are in a dispute with somebody you care about that you might not necessarily have with somebody that you're like at an arm's length distance with. So I think contracts are even important in those situations. And that's usually like my first bit of feedback to people when they're trying to think about the services they're offering and the digital products and just how they want to protect themselves is what do you have in writing? Because that's going to be your what we describe as your first line of defense is your contracts, your anything in writing. I see a lot of kind of we call them Franken contracts where people will take things from the Internet and kind of try to like sew together their own contract. I'm going to say seven or eight times out of 10. That's not like an actual scientific number that I've come up with. I kind of just made that up off the top of my head. But um, I'm going to say like seven or eight times out of 10, most of those Franken and contracts are probably not going to hold up. So I do really recommend investing in speaking with a legal professional to just make sure that your contracts are solid to begin with. And then you can usually reuse them. I also think looking into insurance is a good idea for a lot of people. Insurance is obviously notorious for not paying out. So you do want to kind of use insurance in tandem with contracts and other ways to protect yourself. But insurance is a really good option for people who are in the digital space, especially if you're doing like digital downloads that people are going to integrate into their into their computer systems and things like that. There are different types of insurance out there to protect you if somebody claims that like what they downloaded, like corrupted their system files and stuff like that. And a lot of those policies are fairly inexpensive. So that's always worth looking into. I'm trying to not sound super salesy about all of this, but your business is an investment. There is going to be a lot up front that you're going to have to think about that has a price tag associated with it. But I just keep coming back to the proactivity of it all, where if you are investing in this stuff up front, I cannot tell you how much money you will save in the long run. I can try to tell you, though. I've had people who didn't want to take my recommendation for paperwork and things like that, who six months later, they were audited and now owe like 
upwards of $40,000 in back taxes. So all of that to say, it is worth getting things in writing, even if it costs you a little bit upfront to get that contract written. It is worth looking into insurance. It is worth making sure you've kind of explored the world of having like a formalized entity instead of just doing things as a sole proprietor because there is protection that comes with that. It's really, really worth it to at least have the conversation with an expert around those sorts of things. In my business and even in my career, when I think of all of the worst situations I've had with customers or clients, it's always been when something went awry with a contract, right? Like either you didn't get a contract or you got a contract and signed, but like changed something, but never updated the contract. So then you're like, oh, well, we said we were going to do this and we both agreed, but there was never an addendum made to that contract. In those situations, you normally end up losing money, right? You give a refund. You have to do that because you don't have the proper legal protection in place. And I think if you're a new business owner, if you're a new content creator, a lot of times you just want to get your first sale. Like I kind of also get the desire to not do those steps because you think someone wants to work with me. They're going to pay me $1,000 to do this project. If I give them a long, arduous contract, make them sign it, they're not going to want to sign it. I'm not going to get that money, right? It can definitely feel like a hindrance, but I totally agree with you. If someone is going to be a good client, they're going to understand why you want that signed. And they're going to also understand that it also, you know, at the end of the day, there's some things in there that are going to protect their interests, make sure they get what they need, make sure if you don't provide them what they need, there's something for them too. So I think there's a way that it can be done in a win-win for everyone. And, and if you've never been a business owner or never worked a job where you've had to have legal documentation, that can feel, I'm sure, very overwhelming for people. I want to talk a little bit about a real-life situation that we'd love to get your feedback on because I think it'd be very helpful for our listeners. So the FTC, or the Federal Trade Commission, is taking action to stop LEARN a Maryland-based online business coaching seller from making unfounded claims that consumers can make significant income by starting an array of online businesses. This is based off bogus earning claims to convince people it would teach them to make large sums of money online. This is something lots of coaches and creators do, make claims about what their students, what their subscribers can see if they follow their systems or their practices. And as business owners, as creators, we often have to play role of digital marketer. So we're promoting our services as well as servicing folks and creating that content. Can you explain what's happening in the situation and how, as business owners, we could avoid an outcome like this? You have to remember that the FTC's main job is to protect consumers, right? And so consumers are really just anybody who is purchasing anything in the U.S. And so this company, which I'm not super familiar with. Um, I'm going to just kind of take a stab at this based on what I do know about the situation. So if you do think this might apply to you, seek out an attorney to help you with your specific situation to double check it. But with coaching, it's a coaching is a very interesting field because I think there are so many coaches out there that are really doing important work. But I think that this is also an area that's very susceptible to scammers. And this just sounds like a scam to me. When I look up the different statements that this company was making to consumers, they they were saying stuff like fail 98% of the time and still be able to make $11,453 per month. Sign me up. 
That sounds great. Because it's way too good to be true. But, you know, the way that they're marketing this, you know, that's a very specific dollar amount, which I think if you're not as discerning, you might be like, wow, that must be a real dollar amount I can make based on actual experiences that this person or this company has had. When in reality, this is probably a claim they just made up out of thin air. So, I mean, my feedbacks here for coaches and creators and influencers and content content creators in general, one, be honest about what you know your abilities are and what your expertise is, because this sounds immediately like the core of this was just an immense amount of dishonesty. This is, at the end of the day, a fraud claim. So to avoid fraud, don't lie. Don't make things up. Don't post things that are too good to be true. That sounds like a very obvious thing, but it's not for a lot of people. I think that's something that in this ever competitive business landscape, people kind of want to show their value by putting out the flashiest thing. Um, Michelle, you were saying flashy, flashy, flashy earlier. And I think social media really breeds that kind of need for flash. But sometimes flashy is what gets you into trouble like this. This is a really flashy claim. There were a bunch of other ones in there that the FTC specifically was calling out that were equally as sort of like ludicrous. But there are people out there that will believe that. And so the FTC's job, like I said, is to protect consumers. And it looks like Learn actually was able to take advantage of a lot of people who are probably in really desperate places to make money. This sounds like very obvious advice, but don't be a scammer. Don't be trying to take advantage of people. Be honest. And you'll probably be able to avoid the FTC. If I could just sort of like round this out, a lot of the time the FTC doesn't just come after you. There will be warnings. There will be letters. There will be issues, lawsuits. You know, things will come up. This is not something that just happens out of the blue. I would assume there were lawsuits against Learn on an individual basis before the FTC got involved. But generally speaking, the FTC doesn't just all of a sudden say, bam, you owe us like a million dollars. There's stuff that precedes it. So don't be too freaked out if you are out there and you're a coach or a content creator and you're hearing this and you're worried about your situation. Stick to being honest. Stick to what you actually have expertise in and what you can deliver on. If you're going to use specific numbers like this, make sure you have actual data to back it up. Make sure there's fine print when you make claims like these that explains if there is maybe a little bit that you're leaving out to make it a good soundbite. Make sure there's fine print somewhere that explains the actual full information and you should be just fine. I worked at a test prep company for a huge part of my career. And the team worked so hard on any score increase guarantees, saying if you're taking the SAT, we can help you improve your score by, say, 100 points, right? That wasn't something that would just get thrown out there. There was a legal team helping everyone through the process. There was data and research done to understand what the course could help increase. There was a policy of all the things you had to do as the consumer to get that score increase and a very specific process for how you got that guarantee to like it was very, very detailed and very, very specific. I was a marketer, very specific down to the point is I had like regulations of how I had to frame that guarantee, what had to be on the page, what I had to link to. It was very, very specific and was all provided to us by our legal team in order to be able to talk about that claim. Exactly. You don't even necessarily need a legal team to vet the things that you're going to say. A big part of what we're talking about today is how 
a lot of people who are just getting started don't have a legal team. If you're going to use data points, make sure you can actually back them up. If you're going to make guarantees, which by the way, as a side note, I as a lawyer personally never offer a guarantee because even if I feel very, very, very confident about something, who knows? Everybody's different. Everybody's situation is different. And I mean, we see it all the time with court cases where we have precedent that gets overturned, even if we have really strong precedent. Unfortunately, we've been seeing that in the Supreme Court that we have right now where, you know, cases like Roe v. Wade that have been there for decades have been overturned. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. If you're going to offer a guarantee, again, make sure you have the data points to back it up. Make sure you have some sort of policy in place. If you're going to make a guarantee, make sure it's clear in your contracts what that guarantee entails. If you say that you're, in your example, that your um, test scores are going to go up by a certain amount, what happens if they don't? Do you get a refund? Do you get more coaching? What, do you, what are you going to receive if you can't live up to that guarantee? That's my main suggestion for anybody who's, who's nervous about what they're putting on the internet is clarity, honesty, and don't rip people off in general. <laughs> That's sort of my feedback. Be a good person. Well, I think this does raise bigger questions for us as digital marketers, because again, what we see so often in the online space feels like inflated numbers, whether that's financial or follower count or, you know, what I'm seeing oftentimes in the business and the social media and the online space of what people are promising. And I think that there's a deeper rooted issue here. One, because I know that in the past that I have felt compelled to try to stretch or change the language of something. Whereas, yes, I was working with a client and yes, we did have these sort of outcomes. But if it doesn't feel impactful enough to try to use it in your marketing, that can be really tough because when you feel like being in the health space for a long time, I felt like I was marketing in an ethical way and trying to be in integrity with what I felt like I could speak to. And then I hear from others of digital marketing courses where there is a large fat man in front of the computer teaching you how to make a sales page. And he is creating a sales page for a weight loss program. And he's pulling stock or online found photos of before and afters and just writing and talking and making up weight loss statistics or, or my client did this. And so I think there is a lot of fraud in the online space and the way that people have leaned into marketing with really, really dramatized outcomes or really dramatized experiences can be really tough. Or maybe they've had 100 clients and one of their clients had this outcome. And so then they're promising it to everybody. It can feel really, really hard showing up in the online space when you're just like, hey, I can help you get healthier and do this thing. And so I think that for our coaches and creators who feel like they're struggling with that, I think being more specific about the uniqueness of what you do, what you offer and how you think about things is where you can maybe start to curtail some of that and not feel like, oh, well, I can't measure up to what someone else is marketing or what someone else is talking about. And then just being mindful as a consumer, you know, in the online space, I know that between courses and masterminds and coaches, there's a lot being said out there that maybe isn't true. You know, maybe they did do a million dollar launch, but if they spent 
a million and one dollars, they didn't actually profit from that launch. And I've seen examples of that where ad spend is just as high as the income that's coming in. So try not to be so pulled into that world and have some discernment and think a little bit more critically about that and recognize that that person that says that they have the secret to your success it's nothing new. Like I've seen behind the curtain of a lot of businesses and behind the curtain of a lot of courses and a lot of programs. It's nothing new. You probably have access to it already. There are plenty of resources and find Joanna or myself or get an attorney and figure out if it's actually something that's legitimate. Okay. So another example I really want to talk about. This is another bigger story that I've kind of been seeing popping up on social media. And it's specifically about content creation, which I think is really important because I've had this question before. What about trending sounds? What about audio pulled from movies or TV series? What can I actually use in the online space and be safe as a business owner, as a content creator, as an influencer and be protected? Now, I know that, and Olivia, I know you'll cover this of they're not going to go after the little guy necessarily. But if we do start to grow or if we as influencers or content creators are partnered with larger brands, how can we can protect ourselves? How can we protect our content? So Sony Music Entertainment has filed a lawsuit against U.S. cosmetics brand Ofra, O-F-R-A, for allegedly using its music in Instagram and TikTok ads without permission. So in the realm of content creation, sometimes it really seems like things are kind of just like the Wild West out there. That's what I feel like. When I see things that are gone viral, I'm like, how are they legally using that content in this context? Whether that's reposting or sharing or recreating or copying. I even know that Jay Shetty, when he was first starting to grow, he was actually using quotes of other people and not properly attributing it to them. And he actually got hit with some stuff for that. So it can happen to us as we start to scale and grow in the online space. Now, firstly, as an IG or kind of TikTok user, there are obviously differences between the types of accounts that you have. And as a listener, you need to be cognizant of the type of account that you have. And therefore, the types of content that you're able to access or leverage are different, right? As an individual, a creator, or as a business account. And there are some potential legal issues such as music rights, video usage, and licensing deals on these social platforms that we should really be cognizant of. And so as a coach, creator, influencer, or individual who is even just monetizing their content creation in some way, how can we think a little more critically about what we're posting so that we stay protected? I did not know that about the quote attribution issue, but that happens frequently. But here's the thing is that we're not doing it maliciously a lot of the times, right? Sometimes you don't think about it because it's like, oh, I'm just going to grab that text and repurpose it on my platform and not think about it that way. Because I think when you're in that consistent breeding ground of content creation and you're creating on a quantity basis and you're just like, I just got to get this out. I think that the line is very gray in terms of how you're using words, video, picture, images. And I see it all the time online of like people will post on their Instagram, huge Instagram platforms and basically say DM for takedown. You know, it's almost like ask forgiveness at that point. But you know that they're not getting the permission of whoever that creator is in order to share it. And I think it's just so common that people don't think about it that way. And I don't think that people are often trying to be malicious either necessarily. The quote thing specifically, and this is kind of where I'm going to start this overall feedback. The quote thing to me is just interesting because most of us went to 
elementary school or school where they teach you, you know, about plagiarism as a concept. And I think that that's sort of a good framework for this in general, for this overarching conversation is the idea of avoiding plagiarism is knowing when you create something that maybe you've taken something that somebody else has created and you're using a large part of that without proper credit. And we kind of learn when we learn about plagiarism as kids that, you know, plagiarism is bad because it's taking knowledge that other people have created and kind of co-opting it for ourselves. And I think that's a good way to kind of just think about how we use things on the internet in general. With copyright infringement, a lot of what we look at is how the copyrighted material we're taking is being used. One of the aspects we look at is if it's being used for personal use or commercial use. And so if it's being used for commercial use, there are more considerations we need to make about the use of the material. The idea is we don't want people taking intellectual property that other people have made and making money off of it without the creator getting some sort of benefit out of the deal. Because otherwise that kind of cools innovation is the way we look at intellectual property. We want to incentivize people to keep creating. And one of the ways that we do that is by cracking down on people who use that intellectual property unfairly. And so it is a gray area in a lot of ways because the test for infringement, while there are clear tenants we look to, the way those tenants are applied looks different for each situation. So it's tough. Coming back to the plagiarism thing, my biggest feedback for a lot of my clients is think critically about what you're using and how much of it you're using. The more you're using that somebody else and you're not getting express permission from them, the more likely you are to get into hot water, the more likely that's going to be infringement. It's sort of like if you were to take a picture and repost it versus if you took a picture and added it to a collage with a bunch of things. Try not to take people's stuff Try not to use big chunks of people's stuff without properly licensing it. The difference between plagiarism in general and what we're talking about here, and this will kind of bring me back to the Sony question specifically, is with plagiarism, we talk about making sure that we're properly attributing to our sources. But on the Internet, attribution alone is not enough. So you'll sometimes see on like Instagram posts. I'm not on TikTok, so I honestly don't know how people use TikTok in general. I don't know. Are there captions on TikTok or is it just a video? I don't know. But on Instagram, um, you know, you you will see if people know who the source is, they'll put the source down at the bottom of the caption a lot of time. That's not good enough. It will not protect you in the long run. You need to have a license to use the information how you're using it. And so that kind of brings me back to the Sony thing, which is Sony filing that lawsuit against the cosmetics brands. My understanding is Sony's music was being used by influencers on reels where they were advertising these products. And so Sony has specific licenses with TikTok with Instagram for users to use those songs for their own personal use. So we were talking about this just briefly a minute ago about personal versus commercial use. And Sony has brokered this deal with these platforms basically saying, look, if people are using our music just for sharing it with their friends and sharing it with the world and they're not making money off of it, we're cool with it. We're willing to kind of like license this music out for this set price to you, Instagram and TikTok, and your users are going to kind of be sub licensees. They're going to receive permission under your overarching license. But when we get into the commercial aspect, you've got influencers that are potentially making thousands of dollars per post. And Sony is kind of saying, okay, hold on. You are now making money, including our music on your reel or on your TikTok. And we want a piece of that pie. So you need to 
either license it from us or not post it with our music. That's kind of the deal here. And so my understanding with this particular lawsuit is there were people who were using Sony's music on commercialized posts, either sponsored posts or affiliate posts, things like that, where they're making money off of them. And they didn't have the proper licensing. They needed to go above and beyond what TikTok or Instagram has just for general users. I know on Instagram, that's why they have different types of accounts that you can have a business account for your business. I have a business account for my law firm and I have a personal account for myself. And I can go on to my business account and post a reel and my music options or my sound options are way less than on my personal side. And that's on purpose. That's Instagram making good on whatever their licensing deal with Sony was. All of that to say, if you're using like an outside platform to create your your reels or your TikTok videos and you're able to put music over them and then upload them into the apps, that might be a situation where you'll see later your reel says like audio unavailable because Instagram has an algorithm that goes through and notices like, oh, this is coming from outside or this was not licensed correctly. We need to pull the audio off before anybody gets in trouble, um, including Instagram themselves. A lot of time that will happen. And that's what I was kind of talking about earlier when I said that you're not necessarily going to immediately be slammed by the FTC, the IRS, whoever. There's usually a, a lower level penalty for most creators before the government or anybody else at that higher level gets involved. It's not to say small creators just will always fly under the radar and nothing bad will ever happen to them. I do want to make that clear. Bad things can happen to you. They're just less bad. And so in situations like this, a lot of the time, Instagram will have to take your video down. You're not going to get sued, but Instagram Instagram's going to take your video down. But every once in a while, there are going to be companies that are going to, like Sony, have a lot more money who are going to say there's an overarching problem here, which might be um, that this cosmetics brand is kind of like signing off on how these creators are creating their videos. There are going to be situations where there are big companies that can you know, use their money to go after equally as big companies to get something out of it. In terms of thinking more critically about what we're posting, it kind of comes back to what we were saying about the uh, FTC in general is try to be discerning with what you're posting. Be a good person. Don't take people's quotes. Don't take people's images. Don't take people's songs without making sure you have the right licensing. If you are going to be taking money for your posts, make sure that you talk through what you're planning on posting, not only with the people that are hiring you, but also ideally your lawyer, figuring out what liability would come back on you, what's going to go on the person hiring you. Sometimes you can push that liability off of yourself through contracts. Um, so it is worth bringing in an attorney for that sort of thing. And in general, just think about how much of this do I have to use? How much of somebody else's intellectual property do I have to use to make this post effective or interesting? Try to keep it on the minimal side wherever possible and try to create things from scratch as much as you can. This is coming up more and more with AI being part of the business and creative landscape. How much AI is too much? There's not a very clear line. So it is going to be challenging to feel like absolutely safe using AI. It's going to feel challenging to feel absolutely safe using any kind of content that you are not creating yourself and that you're integrating into your content. So just try to be on the minimalist side. And if you do receive some sort of takedown notice from either a person through a DM or through a platform, usually they'll just take it down without telling you. Respect that takedown notice and, and move quickly. One thing that I think is really complicated on social media with this issue is 
currently there's very blurred lines between a creator and like a business as a social media entity. I'll give you an example and I'll, I have a question, kind of a follow-up question for you. So as an example, basically my personal Instagram is kind of also my business Instagram. Like I talk about my business, I talk about this podcast, but I also post my vacation and my pictures. It's a creator account, so I have access to all of the music because it's not a business account. It's me showing my life as a business owner, which of course sometimes leads to me promoting my business. When looking at that music and all of that and copywritten materials, because I sometimes promote myself, does that affect my whole account or does that only affect the content in which I'm directly promoting something I can monetize for? Because I think that's like this blurry line that I'm unclear about and I think a lot of our listeners would be unclear about. And I love that Michelle said earlier that the online space for creators is really like the Wild West because it is. And one thing that I tell a lot of my clients is the law is a dinosaur. We've evolved as a society past what a lot of our laws are addressing. That's a huge thing with the ADA, the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, and how it applies online. This act, this law was created pre-internet, or at least pre-internet in the way we use it. I think maybe the internet existed, but like on those big chunky machines that only like scientists use. That was created way in the past. And so it addresses a lot of the time um, how people with disabilities can enter physical establishments. But over time, we've tried to apply it to websites. And so there are rules around it, but it's very cumbersome to navigate. And so that's kind of illustrative of what I'm talking about here, where what you're describing makes total sense to me. There is not always a clear line between the personal and the professional, especially on the internet um, where we're all posting about our daily lives 24 7 it feels like and the law doesn't really have a super clear answer for that yet it just hasn't caught up to that reality there's a joke with a lot of attorneys they kind of teach it to in law school which is an attorney's favorite phrase is it depends and that's really just in general how we respond to a lot of these things because the law is so slow because court cases a lot of the time only apply to really specific scenarios and the court will kind of say in different scenarios where this this and this might be different there might be a different set of rules so there's so much gray in the law this would be a time where I don't have a very clear answer, but my recommendation for you would be pay attention to how you are using your personal account. And if it's veering into, I'm just going to throw out a number, it's 50% or more you're using for professional, maybe even 40%. Start thinking more mindfully about how you're posting. You might even get like little pop-up. It happens to me the other day, I jokingly posted that my husband was sponsored by Palm Wonderful, that pomegranate company, because he had like a million million bottles of pomegranate juice and Instagram told me it was like you need to tag this as a paid post even though it was a joke pay attention when those pop up because they might actually be there to help you and protect you and think mindfully about when they do pop up did I post this as a joke or was I trying to get a sponsorship through my personal page that might be morphing it into being more of a professional page it's tough it really is the wild west so this is all when we're creating content, but if we're actually seeing someone create content that is plagiarizing our work, and I've heard about this as well, whether they're stealing digital products and programs, taking videos or direct content posts and pieces, and then they're using it and spitting it as their own, what rights do we have as a creator in order to protect what it is that we're creating 
from someone else taking or stealing or plagiarizing. Yeah, I mean, depending on what people are posting and taking from you. I mentioned the phrase takedown notice earlier because there's a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or the DMCA. And the DMCA requires platforms like Instagram, TikTok, YouTube to have a way for people to submit a notice saying somebody else is using my copyrighted material or, or the material that I've created on your website. And if you, as the overall platform hosting that material, doesn't want to be sued by me, you need to help me get this taken down. I actually can't think of a single platform that doesn't have a dedicated form somewhere on their website to help you do that. You can usually just Google whatever the platform you're looking at is and then DMCA takedown form and it'll usually pop up. And it's almost always like just a form that you fill out online. You don't even need to speak to a person. You might have to upload some like supporting evidence of how something is your material. That can be a little bit more tricky if you don't have a registered copyright or a registration of some sort protecting your intellectual property. Um, it's still potentially an option. And that is something that the law has created to address this type of situation that you are talking about. And then alternatively, if something is not copyrighted or protected through a registration, you can, you might still just be able to use the reporting function on whatever platform you're using to report a post as like inappropriate. I see that a lot where people will like ask their followers if they find like a profile that's impersonating them. That can sometimes be difficult to prove that somebody is impersonating you. So they'll ask their followers just like, can you report this as not being me? But yeah, that that is an area where a lawyer can also help you. We have had people come to us with questions around whether or not they can fight back on this kind of thing. And then we look at their materials that they want to fight back on. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, but you took this from somebody else even before. Um, so, you know, that would be an area where you might want to speak to a lawyer before you do anything too drastic, before you kind of come in guns blazing, saying like, take this down or else. I think an attorney is also really helpful in helping with strategy. That's a big thing that I do for a lot of our clients and my business partner, especially because he does trademark. A huge part of our trademark strategy is just, does it make sense to register a trademark based on what's already out there in the world? Because sometimes you can put yourself on the radar for other people who have similar trademarks that could fight to oppose yours. So sometimes the strategy is what you're paying for with an attorney. It's not necessarily just like drafting paperwork. It's kind of thinking about, okay, what makes sense here? What kind of paperwork? What kind of filings and things like that? This all gives us a lot of things to think, I think, more critically about. And what I'm kind of coming to is that proactive quality that you mentioned at the beginning, Olivia, and really being conscious about how we're creating our businesses, what sort of entity we're building, what it looks like in the long term, and how we kind of think about formulating our foundation and the principles in which we'll be working, whether that is ethics or whether that is legal technicalities. And I think we each have an opportunity to ask those things. I think in the online space, because everything is so gray or people just get started as content creators because it's something they're passionate about and then it actually turns into a full-blown monetized platform, there's sometimes some of those legal things that are missed within the business landscape. So thank you so much for giving us all that feedback. Again, as you're listening, noting that this is not legal advice to please seek counsel from an attorney and just to kind of discern from yourself what's right for me at this time. So as we start to wrap up this conversation, Olivia, our podcast and platform is really about her first, prioritizing yourself in business and life. I know that the legal field is often kind of intense and I know that you've structured your business in a kind of a different format, a different way to prevent burnout and actually to prioritize yourself and take care of yourself. Can you share a little bit more about what that is like balancing those worlds? I take self-care very seriously. 
I have worked in different businesses where the expectation is you work, you work, you work, you work because we're giving you so much. When in reality, it's like you're giving me a paycheck and maybe health insurance if I'm lucky. And I just I don't subscribe to the idea that we live to work. I work to live. I make my money so I can enjoy my time off and, you know, take care of myself and the people I care about. And that really matters a lot to me. So I prioritize that. I mean, self-care can be really boring sometimes. For me, sometimes it's just making sure I eat three meals a day um, because I am so busy and making sure I block out time for that. That sounds ridiculous, but I literally have a calendar block on my day every single day for lunch because it's super common in my industry to just work through lunch. That's really important for me. And kind of relatedly, I set a lot of boundaries with my time with my clients. I only have certain days of the week that I will talk on the phone because I need dedicated time to put my head down and work. That's just how I function best. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, but you want to be available to your clients, you know, more frequently than that. And I'm like, I'm not the kind of attorney where if I don't respond right away, people go to jail. I work on contract. It's not that serious. I can make those boundaries of, okay, I will speak to you on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday, but not Thursday, Friday, because that is when I'm working. And I need that to maintain my sanity. To be honest, like I said earlier, we try to be affordable, but being affordable doesn't ever come at the expense of our own personal health at this law firm. So if I'm having a client who's being really, really unreasonable with their expectations, if they're kind of thinking I'm going to work through my lunch break or that I'm going to work over my weekend or things like that outside of my business hours, I'm pretty comfortable with letting them know that A, I will not do that. And B, if it is something that is truly urgent, like they've just filed, fired an employee and they did it all incorrectly and we need to swoop in to fix the situation, I tell them up front, you're getting billed a rush fee. You're getting billed at a higher rate because that is something that we think will help curb that behavior in the future. Um, so violations of those boundaries that we set, we actually address those in real time. So that's been really important for me in terms of like my individual self-care. But I think in general for making sure that this business is sustainable for myself, my partner and anybody else who works with us, I'm really communicative. And so is my business partner. You probably got that from my responses to your questions. I tend to over communicate rather than under communicate. But that helps us as a team really understand where the other person is at and make sure that we're covering each other and preventing each other's burnout. If I can't handle something, I will tell my business partner and he will either jump in for me or help me craft communication to our client to let them know we have to pass on that project. So really communicative, really introspective. We're always adjusting our business practices to make them more functional, to make them more accessible to our clients. We actually have a huge running list for 2024 of things that we're going to change in our law firm just based on like feedback that we've gotten or that are working for us. And it keeps us all really optimistic also and really hopeful. I think that innovation and that freedom to always be tinkering. And I guess that kind of ties me into my last thought on this is just, I also know that I can always pivot. I know so many attorneys who went to law school, paid all this money to do that. And so they think they have to be attorneys until they die to kind of get a return on their investment. But I don't really believe in that sunken cost fallacy. I'm absolutely going to do my best to pay off my student loans, of course. But if I don't want to be an attorney in five years from now, if I want to do something else, if I want to go into consulting or I want to work in-house and some other capacity for businesses, I'm okay with that. Like I said, I don't live to work, I work to live. And so if this work doesn't serve me in the future and it doesn't meet my needs or my family's needs, I'm okay with pivoting. 
So that makes it so that I can do the work I'm doing without this sort of like big heavy weight on my shoulders of it's me and myself taking care of the rest of the world. It's just knowing I have the ability to be flexible in these ways, which is one of the great things about running your own business and and being able to be the architect of your own career. Thank you, Olivia. We so appreciate your very thorough, very well-spoken answers to all of our questions. I think our listeners can walk away with just a beginning of where to think about with where they might need to seek legal advice, how to be conscientious about the decisions they're making, the claims that they're making, the things that they're saying. But I was really refreshed from this conversation with how you talked about how you run your business and how you run your life. And I think that really resonates with what we're trying to do as a platform, helping people to figure out their dream life, their dream lifestyle, their dream business and what that looks like. Even more so, we released a episode a couple of weeks ago about, it was a follow-up to our conversation about the EOS model. And I don't know if Michelle, my brain started going off while you were talking just now about that conversation we had about what if leadership looked differently? What if we build companies that doesn't necessarily value those big hustle culture points of view and how we can create workplaces and a world that just values different characteristics. And to me, you talking about the business that you're creating, you're doing that. I do want to know because I'm sure our listeners will want to keep connected with you, see where your business goes, see where your journey takes you. Where can people hang out with you and support you? Yeah, so we're on Instagram and YouTube at In Better We Trust. Our website is InBetterWeTrust.com. We upload a ton of legal information to those just about like legal changes that are happening. um, And that's free. Uh, So anybody, clients or not, have access to that kind of info. And then we do a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff on our Instagram so you can get to know our team a little bit more. We also just rolled out a resource for employers with California-based employees. That's important because the law for employees is based on where they're located. So and we're licensed to practice in California. So if you have California based employees and you're new to employment or you um, just want to kind of get a seal for maybe what kind of holes you have in your workplace, that resource is um, a really great resource for people. I'll give you guys a discount code so that if you want to check that out, um, you can get $25 off a month on that subscription, which would bring it down to $40 a month. You can explore it for a month and cancel if you want, but it's a really great resource. It's um, always growing. I add new lessons every month. Um, it's got comment functions so you can ask questions. And it just sort of goes back to what I was speaking about at the beginning of just making sure that people have the info they need up front. We're hoping that this will kind of work in tandem with having a lawyer so that you can kind of hone your skills on figuring out when there are red flags in your workplace and where you need to loop in your attorney or things you can kind of do on your own. It's a really great resource. I am not going to be like um, that coaching company and tell you that you're going to make tons of money as a result of it because I can't guarantee that. But I do think that a lot of people will find value in it. Um, So definitely check that out if you're an employer and it sounds like it might be a good fit for you. There's some public preview options. And then, like I said, I'll also give you guys a code. And yeah, if anybody is in San Diego, we are at the San Diego Made Warehouse. If you ever want to come see us in person and just chat with my team, we'd love to chat with you. Thank you so much. We will link all of those resources and items in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Find the link in the show notes to join us in the Her First Collective, a free Facebook group to discuss the podcast, ask questions of our guest experts, 
and network with a group of female entrepreneurs who value collaboration over competition. Please subscribe, share, leave a review, and be sure to catch our next episode. What is one thing you can do today to prioritize you in business and life?